Father, we want to give you glory. We acknowledge that you are an awesome God. Lord Jesus, you are the name that we will proclaim, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Holy Spirit, we ask that you will be present here because you are the one that will guide us into all truth. You will bring illumination and you will bring us understanding at the same time convicting us so that we will respond as we should. And so we commit this time to you, everything that has been prepared, that in all things, Lord Jesus, you receive all glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in the book of Matthew. We finished chapter 4, the first part, the temptation of Jesus in the last uh, time when we were here. And so this evening, we're going to be reading from verses 12 to 17. So let me read this passage to you, or for you, uh, from the New King James Version. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth... He came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, that's where we get our title tonight. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As with all teachings, it's always good to begin with some observations. Let's look at a broad picture, pick out some things that we can observe from this passage because this will help us in our interpretation. This will help us uh, in our implications later on when we want to derive principles and lessons from this passage. If you remember months ago, way back, many sessions, I actually gave you this in the introduction of Matthew. The title was Meet Matt. And we can see Matthew being divided into three portions, the Gospel of Matthew. One is the introduction. The second is about the Galilean ministry of Jesus. And third, we see the Jerusalem conflict. Tonight, we're actually coming to the end of the introduction. And we're moving into the second section. And Matthew marks this sectioning by those words, from that time from that time. And it indicates that we'll move from one part into now the second part. And later on, there will be another from that time, but that will be way, way back later on. All right, From that time, and that brings Jesus towards Jerusalem, encountering the conflict, and we know how that would have ended up. So this passage that we are exploring in this session provides that link. That's how critical this is. We've, we've only been into the, in the introduction this entire year and this entire time. And this will provide that link. If you look at the introduction from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 16, and I did the task of counting, you know, Matthew was always showing how the Old Testament is fulfilled in this New Testament and in the person of Jesus Christ. How Jesus is the Messiah. That was Matthew's objective. Jesus is the prophesied one. Jesus is the one that Old Testament prophecy talks about. And so he does this, and he ends off this introduction with, can you imagine, seven. Seven Old Testament prophecies. <laughs> I counted it. And it's almost like, you know, seven is that perfect number of God. And, and Matthew would have just given that seven prophecies. What are they? The first one, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. You will call his name what? Emmanuel. The second one talks about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. That was the uh, prophecy that talks about you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. The third one was about um, Joseph bringing Jesus into Egypt and later on, uh, uh, God taking his son out of Egypt. So there we have, out of Egypt I called my son. Herod persecutes the people there, kills all the little babies, and a voice was heard in Ramah, fulfilled, number four. Number five, Joseph brings Jesus back into the land, but he does not go back into Jerusalem, he detours and lands up in Nazareth, fulfilling a collective group of prophecies that he shall be called a Nazarene. And then the sixth one was not 
really about Jesus. It's about uh, John the Baptist declaring that he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And this session, we get into the seventh one, where Matthew quotes from Isaiah, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and so on, talking about Jesus getting into the region of Galilee. Isn't Scripture just amazing? How, how Matthew, guided and led, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would pick out these uh, uh, prophecies and had to be number seven. It's interesting. It's many sevens in, in the entire Bible. So that's the first thing we notice. Now, what we also want to see and point out is that the last time we looked at the temptation of Jesus, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and now we are starting with Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. Now, if you casually just read the Bible, you would think that, okay, after Jesus was tempted, he goes to Galilee. You know, that's the typical way of reading. We just scan through and we think that it is the very next thing that he did. The Synoptic Gospels actually record his Galilean ministry immediately. They go straight to him being in Galilee and they just uh, uh, record about his miracles and his activities all the way down there. Only John, the Gospel of John, records his earlier ministry before he finally settles in Capernaum. So this shows us that at the time, after the time of temptation, from that time to the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, there is a time lapse. It's not one day. It's not two days. And some commentators have actually looked at it and said it could be almost up to a year. Jesus did minister a little bit here and there before finally making Capernaum and Galilee his headquarters. So if you look at John's gospel, you would see that you know, he, calls, he meets his first disciples after the, after the, the baptism. Uh, he actually goes to a wedding in Cana, which is in Galilee. and You know what happened down there. And he, at the time of Passover, he goes to Jerusalem. So he did go down to Jerusalem, and later on, on the way back to Galilee, he bypasses to Samaria. He meets the Samaritan woman at the well. So there are different aspects and different points of his ministry before he finally returns to Galilee. All right, so this is one important point to see. But when does he do that? That's a key event where Matthew records. When he heard that John had been put in prison, that was the time Jesus returned, you see? And we have also uh, a confirmation in that because if you read John chapters uh, 2 and 3 and 4, where it records all of Jesus' activities, John actually tells us in chapter 3 verse 24, for John the Baptist had not yet been thrown into prison. That's very clear, right? So it indicates for us it's not time yet for Jesus to make Galilee that settlement place for himself. So, the moment John was thrown into prison, Matthew records that. It says then that Jesus departed. In the NIV, it says he returned. In the ESV, it says he withdrew. And the question we have to ask is, why did he do that? You know, why, why did he you know, uh, uh, make that move the moment he heard that John was in prison? Could it be that you know, he said, well, better keep a low profile. You know? Someone got through in a prison. Or better don't make such a big deal out of this. Let, let, let the dust settle down first and then I'll come back out again. Was it out of fear? Of course, obviously we would say no, it's not out of fear. It is because Matthew has given us the reason that it might be fulfilled. He was fulfilling prophecy. He actually knew that it was time now for him to get back to Galilee. It was not a mistake. It was strategic. It was prophetic. And Matthew wanted his readers to really know. Now, what's the context? That's why I have to share this with you. Why is it important to know this? Now, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, obviously, it comes after two chapters before that, which is Isaiah 7 and 8. Isaiah 7 and 8 would record for us, I hope you remember this in a lesson earlier, a Syro-Ephraimite war. Now, things were not doing well in Israel. There was this tension and there was this war or impending war involving Syria, Israel, Judah, and also Assyria. Now, I've shown this to you on the chart. You can see Ahaz, the king of Judah, right down here. And 
that was the Emmanuel prophecy. That was, he was given the Emmanuel prophecy, you remember? This is Pekah. He is the king of Israel. That's a northern kingdom. And this is Rezin in Syria. And Assyria was the big force then, Tiglath Pileser III, and he was going to invade this entire piece of land. So that's the background. It was not a good time. So the prophecy in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, comes after 7 and 8, that there will be an invasion of Assyria, and through that, from this direction coming down, from north towards the south, the land will be conquered. It will be destroyed. And it ends on a very, very low note, very dark note. If you read chapter 8, all the way from 19 to 22, in verse 22, actually, it says this, they will look to the earth. I mean, that's really telling you that your, your heads are just hanging down, you know? There's, there's no more hope. They will look to the earth and they will see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. That's the kind of picture. When you understand that, then you see the significance of chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Because in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, the first two verses, it introduces one word, nevertheless. Your heads may be hanging down, there may be gloom, anxiety, hopelessness, darkness, nevertheless. It's a, it's a declaration of hope, you understand? The gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people walked in darkness, having seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And so when Matthew quotes these two verses from Isaiah, it is a voice of hope. It is a declaration to say, look guys, this Jesus, he's going back to Galilee, the Galileans in that region have seen a great light. Guess who Matthew is trying to talk about? It's talking about Jesus. This is the light that's going into Galilee. This is the light that they will see. Now, as a good Jew, if you know your scriptures, if you quote verse 1 and 2, you will know exactly what's going to follow from after that. And you know, and we know today, especially over Christmas, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, For unto us, a child is born. You see that? And you can quote the rest. You know that his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, you know, and, and, and so on, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And, the, and that was what Matthew was declaring. This is the light. This is the Messiah. And interestingly, the same way or the same direction that the invasion came into, from the north to the south, salvation and deliverance is also coming in that same pattern. That Jesus will start up in the north and He will work His way all the way down to Judea in the south to bring salvation and deliverance. Isn't prophecy amazing? Yeah? I mean, sometimes I read the Bible too fast. I don't understand the context. And that reason, okay, Jesus is Galilee because He is the man from Galilee. You know, and we sing these songs and we, we don't understand the, the, the significance of how powerful and how great our God is. Now let's look at what Galilee is all about. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now up in the north, this is the Sea of Galilee here and towards the left-hand side, you will see Naphtali and Zebulun. This entire region was given over to the, diff the different tribes, the allotments. In contemporary times of Jesus, this is how it would look. The Sea of Galilee here, Capernaum is there, and we have Mount Tabor, Nazareth is over this side, Cana is there, and it goes all the way down south. And you notice that it was also described by three descriptions down there, three descriptions. Before I get to that, the word Galilee comes from the Hebrew Galil which means circuit or a circle. It is like a, a ring, a circuit of towns and villages uh, strung together. Galilee is the northern region. Then, of course, you have Samaria and you have Judea. These are the three regions. 
Galilee was not really a great place. It doesn't have a great reputation. In fact, it was recorded in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, that Solomon, in return uh, of uh, King Hiram of Tyre for his help, Solomon actually gifted 20 cities to King Hiram of Tyre. And it's recorded, King Hiram went to see the cities. He went to Galilee, which Solomon had given to him, and they did not please him. In other words, not, not exactly prime land. Okay, so that's up there in the north. Now, it's also called the way of the sea because this is a major trade route. And people coming from the north, if they want to go down to Egypt, they will come by the way of the sea. This is the route. Can you see that? And not only is it a trade route, it was also the main thoroughfare for invading armies. So people will come down, people will go up, you know, so there's a lot of exchange and a lot of foreigners, a lot of external influence. And you know what happens when these things happen, right? When you have immigration coming in and people settling down there. So that place became very mixed. It was not just Jews, it was also lots of Gentiles. The second descriptor is called the other side of the Jordan or beyond the Jordan. And this is where you find this name called the Decapolis or 10 cities over here. And over this side, it's called Beyond the Jordan. And not really viewed favorably either. Anything that's beyond is like, oh, you're a little bit far away. Yeah? So non-Jewish also largely in their makeup. The people not really happy with the Beyond the Jordan type people because they came under the control of the Greeks and as well as the Romans. And finally, this descriptor sort of sums it all up. Galilee of the Gentiles. Why? Because there became more and more Gentiles than Jews. It was like the interracial type of a mix, that ethnic makeup. So it's considered less spiritual. There's a lot of pagan influence. Um, it's regarded with contempt. You remember the teaching when I gave to you about Nazareth? If you're called a Nazarene, it's like a, it's like a bad name. Yeah? It's like you from, from this outback or, or something like that. It's, it's, an, it's negative. It's derogatory. So... There's, there's no bad re reputation, uh, is rejected, is despised. That's Galilee. And that's where the Messiah went. So this commentator actually wrote, Galilee is a strange place for a Messiah to work. There's no early rabbinic reference to the Messiah's appearing or working in Galilee. Galilee was not just geographically far from Jerusalem, it was considered spiritually and politically far too. Galilee was the most pagan of the Jewish provinces, located as it was at the northernmost tier of Israel. This distance from Zion was not only geographic. Galileans were considered by Judeans to sit rather loosely to the law and to be less biblically pure than those in or near Jerusalem. That's a reputation. So can you imagine if Jesus is called the man from Galilee, if you are a Pharisee from Judea, how would you feel? Right? You would look at this guy and say, oh, you mean like that? Huh? It's like, I mean, let's be honest here. Sometimes we say, which church are you from? And this person say, oh, I'm from this church. Oh, yeah? and then you're like, oh, yeah, that church, huh? You know? <laughs> that, that, that kind of, uh, we know, you know about you. And especially after what has happened this morning, huh? a certain church would have received a certain reputation. Follow? Not only that, interestingly, Galilee was also notorious. It was a nest for, for revolution. The zealots, those people who are uh, wanting to overthrow the foreign rule, uh, they have a lot of movements down there. Just before the birth of Jesus, it was actually reported that there was a revolt led by this guy called Judas of Galilee. Now, this is not Judas Iscariot. Huh? It's Judas of Galilee. And the Roman government just came in and squashed the entire thing. So not a great place. And Jesus came from that place and he gains popularity. Do you think the Romans will be happy with that? They will be watching this guy, you see? So all these things contribute, all the factors here, to the kind of uh, climate or the context of the, in the environment that Jesus was ministering in and around. I hope this is useful to you. Yeah? This is all the observations. And so with that, I want to give you five points. As I look at the observations and I studied this, 
I'm saying, Lord, so I understand this. You, you fulfilled prophecy. Uh, yes, Jesus came from Galilee. He's not really uh, well looked up to, you know, in that sense. But what can we learn from this? We, we want it to be practical. We want it to be something that we can take, something that we can take away so that it means something for us as we seek our assignments uh, in the Lord. And so let me bring these points over to you. The first is, I feel we, we need to learn how to discern God's appointed time. How do we discern God's appointed time? Let's look at Jesus. We see that Jesus, He didn't jostle, He didn't rush for, for His ministry. He, he, was, he was very calm about everything. And I'm, I'm going to demonstrate this to you. Jesus waited for the right time. I mean, He grew up in, in Nazareth. That's Galilee, right? I mean, as a boy growing up, He might just say, I'm here already, I'm in Galilee, I might as well just start. After all, that's what the prophecy said. So since I'm already in Galilee, why not? No problem. We, we just move on. But no, he waits for God's appointed time. Okay, that's the first thing. And you know that only Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. All the other gospel writers did not quote this prophecy. And it shows us that Matthew is really showing uh, is really demonstrating that he's linking John's imprisonment as a very key event marker. This would signal a right time. Before that, it was not the right time. I'll give you an example. Jesus was at the wedding in Cana. Everybody knows that. Right? And one, his reply always puzzled me. They run out of wine. Mary goes to Jesus, tells her son, you have no wine. And Jesus looks at her and says, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You see that? And I never realized this. And as I prepared for this, I, oh, I see this now. Cana is in Galilee. Jesus could have just, let's go for it, man. This is Galilee. It's good ground. Let's do it. But it was not time. And so he tells the mother, look, it's not time. It's not time. I know later on he goes on and performs it anyway. You know, but he declares first, it's not time. But there's a lesson even in that. So something we have to learn is this. God's promises and assignments always operate on God's time. Always. If you want to be on kingdom assignment, you have to learn to discern a timing of God. Casually, I was reading the book of Genesis. And I don't think it was a coincidence that I came across the account of Abraham and Sarah entertaining the three heavenly guests. And one of whom, of us, obviously was the Lord. And he declares, Sarah will have a son. And Sarah laughs. And here comes this verse. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time. You see this? At the appointed time, I will return to you. There is an appointment of God because the things of God will happen according to His appointed time. Now, this word appointed time is taken from the Hebrew moed. And moed is translated for the Lord's feast. It means to assemble at appointed times. It means to meet together at times dictated by the Lord or assigned by the Lord. These are God's appointments with men and men with God, you see? So it's the same thing. So as God gave Israel the feast to say, these are critical times that you must observe. The same thing for assignments and promises of God. We watch for the appointed time of God. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, of course we know. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. At the end, it will speak, it will not lie, though it tarries, wait for it because it will come, it will not tarry. It sounds like a contradiction in terms, right? Although it tarries, wait because it will not tarry. So if it will not tarry, then why should it tarry? Then I should wait. You see, no, God uses this kind of a language with us because He's stretching us to think. He says, look, it will come. It will come. You have to wait for it. It seems as if it's not coming. 
But when it comes and you know it after that, you realize actually it was not late. It did not tarry. It's God's appointed time. I'm encouraged to know this because I see that there is an urgency of the times today. Amen? Something is happening in the world. There is prophets, teachers, pastors, they keep saying there is an acceleration of things. And yet, there's an, an urgency of the times, but you know something? God is not in a rush. Everything is going according to His plan and according to His time. Isn't that wonderful? And so, I tell myself that many times because I, I tend to speed up. If you're like me, you'll do the same thing, right? And we think we're all spiritual and, you know, working things for God and, you know, trying to be the best that we can be. And then God is like, yo, what's the rush? You know, but, but God, you know, look at this, look at that. You know, but like, yo, yeah, it's under control. You know, have, have you been there? And, and I, would, I have to pull myself back and say, yeah, he's not in a rush. There's an urgency. But you see, we are walking according to God's appointed time. Amen? And I'm encouraged for our keepers awakening. And why am I saying this? I know the timing of our keepers, the birth of it, the introduction of it is, is a right timing. And yet, as we have begun something for this past one, one year, I'm waiting for the time not just to be right, I'm waiting for the time to be ripe. Are, are you following? I'm not, I'm, I know the time is right. We, we are on a timing of God. But like anybody, I want it to move faster. I, I want it to grow. I want it to expand. I want, to, you know, I want to see people getting onto assignments because I tell people, you know, there's an urgency and all that. And yet God is reminding us the time is right. You're doing this correctly, but you have to wait for the time to be ripe. Something has already begun for us, but I believe we are still in the season of sowing, of sowing, of sowing. So friends, learn to discern God's appointed time. In the Greek, we call it kairos, right? It's the same concept. There is a season for the things of God. And there's a time that He appoints. Now, I admit to you and I affirm you that sometimes it's not quite as easy to know it. And that's why it's good many times when we reflect, then we see it. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So take time to also reflect because in that you see the timing of God and His hand upon your life. Okay, so first point, discern God's appointed time. Jesus knew it very well. He was definitely 100% in tune with the Holy Spirit. And the moment John was put into prison, he said, this is time now. He's going back now. And Matthew records that for us. Now, in the meantime, since we're on the subject of time, be faithful and obedient. Look at Jesus. In the meantime, he says, my hour has not come. It is not that time yet. He attends the wedding. Mother talks to him. He says, he gives the reason. And he says, okay, never mind. Go fill up the pots with water. And he performs a miracle. Can you see this? So these are isolated cases. So he performs a miracle. He observes the Passover. And he doesn't just stand there and say, it's not my time yet. He was filled with the zeal of the Lord, right? And he sees the money changes going down there. In John, John chapter 2. It's not the second time when you go. This is the first time. He overturns the table, creates a whole ruckus, and that's why he earns himself a little bit of reputation. But he does what he needed to do. Be faithful and to be obedient. At night, Nicodemus comes to him. He engages with the rabbi. And he tells, straightforward, you know, just tells him like it is. You mean you're a teacher and you don't know all these things? I have to tell you again. And we have the famous verse, John 3.16, recorded for us. And this is before Jesus started his actual prophetic ministry, so to speak. You understand? He continues. He, then he's led to go by Samaria and he sees the woman at the well and he could have just looked at her and said, not my time yet. Don't do anything. No, he, he ministered. You see this? I'm trying to show you something here. Are you, are you catching this? 
And as he does this, he's gathering a following. His credibility is growing. Of course, his reputation is also spreading, right? Whether you see it positively or negatively, he did all these things and it still wasn't time. Come on, guys, you got to catch this one, all right? And in Akipa's awakening language, I call this sub-assignments. You understand? It's a sub-assignment that prepares us for the main assignments. There are bigger things. And Jesus' main assignment, what would that be? Dying on a cross. But that will come at an appointed time. To the very second, to the very hour, amen? Where the lamb will be slain. That's God's appointed time on the feast. But as we are waiting and discerning and learning, there are many opportunities, my friends. These, if you say, I'm not sure whether this is really my assignment or not. I tell the people at the awakening event, doesn't matter, pray, discern, go for it. This is my sub-assignment. I will minister. I will be faithful and I'll be obedient in these small things. God will use these as little tests, little markers for you to help to check your alignment. All these will happen. And as the prophet Zechariah says, do not despise the day of small things. But let's be honest, not everyone is called to huge things. Correct? For some, all their lives, it could just be a series of small things. But the point is, be faithful and to be obedient. Because it will add up. See, faithfulness and obedience are key issues, friends. This has become a war cry for me. It's almost like every time I'm teaching or I have a chance to talk to someone, I would, I would say, look, you know all these principles, very nice. But can you grasp and catch the most important one? Obedience. Obedience and faithfulness, these two, they're synonymous. The whole Bible, if you want to summarize in a simple one line, is very simple. It, it, it can be done in this way. The problem is Adam disobeyed. The solution is Jesus obeyed. Amen? Is that correct, none? Why are we in this problem? Adam disobeyed. Why are we rejoicing? Because we have the solution. Jesus obeyed. It's all of our obedience. It's all of our obedience. Don't get snooked by anyone coming to tell you to say, you are saved already. Don't worry. Don't have to obey anymore because Jesus obeyed for you. That's the craziest thing that we can, you, can, you, can, you can receive. Amen? Faithfulness and obedience are key issues. Now, once you understand that, then you, you, you understand the next line. It's not just about doing things for God. It's about doing what He tells us to do. There's a difference. I can run around like a chicken without a head. I'm doing this for God. I attend this church meeting. Oh, I serve, you know, seven days a week, you know. And, and wow, I'm so good, you know. But what's the use if the Lord never asked you to do any one of these things? That's why I'm hung up about kingdom assignments. Are you understanding? You need to know this assignment that you can fulfill it. Otherwise, what are you doing? So in the meantime, be faithful and be obedient. Don't use not knowing your assignment as an excuse. Okay? After this, all of us, seek the Lord. Show me, Lord, what is that sub-assignment? How can I do it? Alright? How does it line up to a main one? Even if I don't even understand what that might be, will you guide me and push me along? Because it's not about what I do. It's about my faithfulness and my obedience. The third thing is to be sensitive to major events. You know, John's imprisonment was like a, a major event. These are milestones. What I call turning points in either your life or in global situations. Things are happening around us. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. It's time. He knew it. It's just, he just knew it. In the spirit, he knew. I've got to make the move now to Capernaum. Nothing's going to stop him now. So my question for us is, are we aware of what's happening around us? Do you know many Christians are clueless? They don't know what's happening. And they are going with the flow. Now even today, it's scary because they even use the Holy Spirit's name to say, I'm going with the flow of the Holy Spirit. It's an excuse. 
They have no discipline. They have no direction. They don't know what to do. And they just use this nice charismatic term, I'm led by the Spirit. I think you've got to check which spirit. Okay? We have to discern, look at what's happening around us. Look at Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, guys, don't, don't walk around like fools. Walk around like wise people. Walk circumspectly. In other words, be careful. Look around you. Be circumspect. Observe. Keep your eyes open. Now, as you do that, you need to redeem the time. Now, redeem the time is not chronos. It's kairos. In other words, once your eyes are open, you can redeem what you have lost before with the kairos or the opportunities that God brings to you. Amen? That's the appointed times of God. The appointed opportunities for you to speak into someone's lives or, or to do something there. It's not kairos. So many Christians pray this line, Lord, I want to redeem the time because I need 25 hours. If I give you 25 hours, you will still waste it. Amen? So God knows exactly how many hours we need. Our problem is we are not walking with our eyes open. And He gives the reason. The days are evil, friends. The days are evil. So as you look at all these things, and God, uh, God will allow these things, you begin to understand the will of the Lord. You must know His will. If you don't know His will, how do you connect and fit in and align with His will? That is a big problem. So if you don't know the will, read the Bible. It's very clear. He shows everything to us, plain and simple. So as you observe these things, just now we read from that passage in Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, the Moed, I will return to you according to the time of life. Now, isn't this interesting? God gives two little markers down here. Huh? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life. Sarah shall have a son. Now, this word time of life or this phrase is not Moed. Is a different word that actually means a certain season of life, a certain age. And some translations would say that uh, at the appointed time, I'll return to you this time next year. Sarah will have a son. Okay? And so this shows us it is a certain age, a certain period, or a certain maturity. And I believe that times we may have to, God will have to allow us to come to a level of maturity or to experience something enough. And if you can imagine this track, it's like we are, we are traveling our life experience this way, and God's appointed time is coming this way. Are you following? Can you see that? You know, and you know, my hands just cross, and right there is the intersection of God and man coming together. Isn't that beautiful? And how it works out, I don't know. I, can't even, I won't even try to figure it out. All I know is at a certain age, maybe when I was 30 years old, God intersected my life. I may not know it. I move on to 40 years old and God intersects me again by an appointment again. There's an experience that I, I, I have, you know. And these things happen to us. These are milestones, friends. Now, if you've never observed some of these things before, you take time, go for a retreat one day, sit quietly by the beach, you know, nobody disturb you. You reflect and you see the hand of God in our lives. Amen? It's amazing. Then you see, then you begin to learn how to discern the timing of God and how He sees you through every season. Let, let's talk about Akiba's awakening. The call of God upon Akiba's awakening as He gave this to me. If you read the introduction where I, I talk about God getting my attention again, it shows 12 years since the year of call, and I say, Lord, where's, what's the next 12 years going to hold? And then I reflect again, and it was, I reflect, I been, it was 10 years since I stepped out. Then I said, Lord, what's the next 10 years going to hold? And interestingly, both the equations, 12 plus 12 and 10 plus 10 years, added up to the year 2024, which is when I was, I was going to turn 60 years old. Now you know how old I am. 
And as I worked backwards, then I realized God gave me this ministry just before I turned 50. Our Keeper's Awakening was birthed out as I went into my Jubilee. And it was preparing me for a time as I moved towards 60. This next decade is going to be critical for me. I've already used up one and a half years of it. That's why I'm in a rush, you see. You understand, huh? I, I'm, I'm, on a, I'm traveling a God's, uh, along God's timeline. Not only that, it happens after that, giving us one year of sort of a, of sort of a, a warm-up, Singapore celebrates SG50. Amen? And then we begin to see different streams converging. We are not the only ones, guys. God is raising His people and positioning them. And it's all according to His timing. And we may not be able to see it at this point, but as I connect with different kingdom people, I'm seeing it flowing. And we're not converging fully yet, but we're going in the same direction. We're not competitive. We're complementary. And one prophet actually says that when the, when the streams come together, it's going to be a mighty river. There's going to be such a unity of the body of Jesus Christ. You see, that's why I'm thrilled when I see people here. We are all from different local churches. Please don't call this the church of our keepers. <laughs> but in a way, it is, right? A church is an assembly and a gathering, so we are an assembly of our keepers. Amen? Right? But it's all about the kingdom, amen? The kingdom is moving forward. You've got to look at major shifts. Whatever happened this morning, I tell you, it's a major shift. You take note, it is a major shift. Things are being moved into place. And God is allowing it, alright? Now, the fourth point is this. Know your area of operation. This is our keeper's language. I want to be consistent so that you don't learn too many new terms. Your area of operation is the place where you will carry out your assignments. That's where you operate. And Jesus knew his area of operation. He departed to Galilee, not anywhere else, not Samaria, not Judea, you know, not to the outer ends of the world. No, he goes back to Galilee because he knew. He knew he would end up in Jerusalem finally. But for a large part of his ministry, the primary AO, or the area of operation, would be Galilee. And we'll come to that verse where he, it records that he went about all Galilee, teaching, preaching, healing. You know, sometimes uh, we may not like a certain place, so we ask God to shift us and change us. Now, if Jesus was like that, uh, we would have missed everything. Galilee was an entire region. It was not a great place. It's not a good reputation. Josephus, the historian, records there are 240 cities and villages. Now you know why Jesus was so busy. 240 cities and villages. It's more than the number of GRCs and electoral boundaries that we can set. Right? Singapore, we cannot even handle. We don't want to go to a certain place. Jesus ministered all of Galilee. I'm not saying he went through all 240, but he traveled a lot. It was a mix of Jews and Gentiles. It was not a great place. But one thing stood out very clearly. Jesus was not a temple churchman. Right? He didn't stay there. He was a field man. He was in the field. He was not stuck in assembly area, AA. He was out in AO, the area of operation. And so today, I'm challenging people. I say, you need to know your area of operation. Where is this place? Where is this place? And there's a characteristic I notice about areas of operation. You look for people in darkness. This is areas of operation. There will always be people and they will always be in darkness. So if you go into a place and there are people but they're not in darkness, you don't have to be there. It's the people who are in darkness, when the light comes, then they see the light has dawned upon them and they have seen a great light. Amen? So the AO characteristic is that you must look for people and they are most likely in darkness. Friends, it's all about people. It's all about people. If you're stuck in the church doing activity that does not bring your heart to a person or ministers to a person, can I suggest to you, there may be a little bit of a problem. Jesus dies for people. And He went out there to reach the people. Matthew 4.16, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has 
dawn. And there are two groups of people in Galilee of the Gentiles. The word, the people set in darkness, this word people is translated from the Greek laos, where today we get the English equivalent laity. Are you guys in the laity? Right? So that's why I call them God's kingdom people. The people who lived in Galilee, God's kingdom people, they have been devastated. They have been run over. They have been compromised. They have been adulterated by all the Gentile influence, the pagan worship, the idolatry, all the kind of silly things that have been there. God's people have been sitting in darkness. So I want you to think, when you go to church, do you see God's people, some of them, still struggling in darkness? And I'll tell you, yes. They can do the Christian thing. They can say the Christian thing. They can perform everything you tell them to do. They might even be serving and be in cell group. But they are still struggling in darkness. These are the Laos. This is the laity. We who have encountered the light must bring the light to them. Right? It's, it's such an irony, isn't it? Now, we are to be children of light, but we still live in darkness. And the second group will be the Gentiles. I call them pre-kingdom Gentiles. Because we are all Gentiles, you know. Right? But we are kingdom Gentiles. But in Christ, there's no more Jew or Gentile. We are in Christ. Right? But technically, we are all Gentiles. So I'd rather call them pre-kingdom Gentiles you know, than use this term pre-believer. After you believe, huh, you can still have a problem. Huh? I want people to be kingdom people. And so, Jesus didn't say, come, come to the temple. He goes to them. Everywhere he wants, marketplace, workplace. He ministers through relationship, through friendships. Guys, you, you and I, we have more reach than the pastors do, you know. The pastors are supposed to equip us so that we can do the work of the ministry. This is the whole idea, but sadly, sadly, in many cases, we end up serving the machinery of the church. And the church service on Sunday is the biggest thing ever. It shouldn't be there. I'm not saying don't have a great time. Have a good time, but don't miss the picture. We have assignments in our areas of operation. Jesus lived, kingdom. He declared, he preached, but he demonstrated it. I think that's how it has to be. He gives us an example. He knew his areas of operation and we must know our area of operation. There are a lot of people who are either living in sin or they are trapped in the consequences of sin. But even as you go out, please remember the fifth thing. And this is the timeless message of the kingdom. See, we've been talking about appointed time, not the right time, not the good time, you know, all that, whatever, whatever time. But the message of the kingdom, when you go out there, as you demonstrate this, before that, Jesus always says, declare the kingdom. We carry a message, and this message is timeless. It's not contingent upon what time it is and when it is. Our ministries or our assignments may differ, but our message stays the same. You notice, Jesus repeats exactly the same message as John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what he's really doing in one part is that he fully affirms John's message and his ministry. There's nothing wrong with John. He may have been thrown into prison. It's not because he has done something wrong. In fact, he was thrown in because he did something right. So Jesus continues and says, nothing wrong with my cousin. The message is right. It's timeless. And as John leaves off, Jesus picks up and he continues. And friends, you and I would find ourselves in that kind of a situation where someone will come in and lay a groundwork where you take on. The message continues and stays the same. Now, if you look at Jesus, he's consistent. It says, from the time Jesus began to preach and to say, and I say, wow, very low soul, eh? why say preach and say? Well, why can't you just use one word, say preach the kingdom of God? Lah? Or this is why he said, you know? then I realized to preach is really to proclaim, declare, and it's, it's, to, it's to big, big crowds. And that's what he did. He preached, and that's what I'm doing now, to preach to each and every one of you. But if I have a coffee with my brother, I will still say to him the same thing. 
So whether I'm talking to one, to two, to three, or to 300 or 1,000, my message remains the same. And I noticed a few things about Jesus. He preached to the crowds, but he never pandered to the crowds. He didn't change the message so that more people will come. Right? He didn't soften his message. Not at all. He did not pander to the crowd. The next thing is that he declared the good news, the, just the good news of God. He didn't have to make the good news gooder. You know what I'm trying to say, right? Sometimes we feel like the good news is not good enough. We have to make it gooder. So that it will be more attractive. You know, after all, we must be good, good, goodest news, ma. He just declared the good news. This is it. He never tried to make it more attractive. He was inclusive from the start. You know, Jesus was very inclusive. He invited everyone into the kingdom by His grace. And in fact, that was one of His biggest problems because the Pharisees were telling Him, don't do that. But you see, as He did that, the third thing, Jesus never lowered the standards of the kingdom. See, I have a problem if you invite everybody in and tell them, don't worry, nothing else you have to do anymore. Then that's a big problem, isn't it? Because Jesus never lowered the standards of the kingdom. He declared the truth, with grace, obviously, but without compromise. He tells everyone, and as we go into His teaching, we will learn, there will be people who will not make it into the kingdom. When He teaches kingdom conduct, man, it's tough. If not for the Holy Spirit, not for His grace, we won't make it, man. We won't be here. He talks about discipleship and devotion to the King. We will cry right, today when we look at ourselves. So what did Jesus preach and what did He say? The message of the kingdom. Nothing has changed. Why are we trying to reinvent things? Why are we trying to come up with a new revelation? It's scary because you hear the teachings that are going around today. We must pray. We have to read our own Bibles, okay? And be warned, not everyone would accept the message of the kingdom. Don't try to please everyone. In your kingdom assignments, you'll be faithful to the assignment and to your message. Not everyone will accept the message of the kingdom. You know why people may like the perks of the kingdom, but they don't necessarily want the rule and reign of the king. But you can't have one without the other. It's a package deal. You accept Jesus, you love Him, you serve Him. Kings of their own kingdoms were not like this kingdom. Herod didn't like it very much. John got arrested, got beheaded. Religious leaders didn't really take it very nicely. Jesus also got arrested and was crucified. Are you ready for that? And so friends, five principles that we draw from this little passage. One, we see how Jesus knew the timing of God. I desire that. Okay? And we need to learn how to do that. Number two, be faithful and obedient even while you're waiting. Even if you're unsure. One thing you can be sure about, faithfulness and obedience. Right? Do that. Three, keep your eyes open. Watch and pray. Look at the signs around us. Look at major things that are happening. Discern that intersection of God's appointed time and the time of your life. Fourth thing, seek the Lord. Move into areas of operation. Look for people. Look for people. Open your eyes. Listen to people's cries. That's an area of operation God may be bringing you into. And fifth, understand the timeless message of the kingdom. It does not change. Let me conclude. If you look at our title, from that time is taken from those three words in that verse, verse 17. But the word from, that preposition, from that time, shows you a, a time that would be forward, right? Moving, there's a, there's a movement from that time forward, not from the time backwards, huh? From that time, and that time continues. And I believe we are entering or we have entered into a time and a season of God's final move. It's much larger than any of us can fathom or even discern properly. But it's just something that is there. We've moved into it already. 
And God is awakening His saints, aligning them to His purposes. I've said this over and over again. I hope it doesn't become rhetoric to you. Okay? You need to know this. And for different, different ones of us at different times, appointed times and times of our life, God brings a, a, a collision, a, a revelation. That's that moment of time or moment in time which we use this word is an awakening. How long does it take to awaken someone? It's quite quick. One slap, wake up already. Yeah? Now, whether you really get up out of that is a different thing, right? Yeah? Amen? You don't believe? I try. Any volunteers? Yeah, let me look. Everyone, eyes open now. But isn't it true, right? When the Lord speaks and enters and breaks through, that's that moment. That's the, that's the intersection, I call it. Something happens. And we begin our eyes to be open, our hearts are open, we begin to see people who are walking in darkness, you see. From that time, it's our response that makes a difference. From that time, do we want to be aligned with the Lord? From that time, will we move in tandem with the Lord? This is the key, friends. Otherwise, you, you, you just nice... Wow, you know, so nice to hear appointed times. You know, Christians like to hear this kind of thing. From that time, anyone feeling overwhelmed? A little bit inadequate? Well, you're not alone. Let me just tell you, remember Galilee. You know, all the disciples, except for Judas, they were all Galileans. Jesus was a Galilean. The disciples were Galileans. The women who followed Jesus all the way from Galilee to the foot of the cross were all Galileans. Galilee was a place that was of no repute or poor repute. The people were in darkness. You know something about Galilee or Galileans? They understand what it means to see the light because they have experienced their own life in the dark. You see, so if you have gone through a time of darkness or if you are struggling, I'm not laughing at you, you know, I don't wish for you to be there long, but it's a good experience, amen? If you allow the Lord to come in, the light to shine, you are going to see that light dawn upon you and awakening is going to happen from that time. You are that Galilean, amen? Does our keeper sound like a Galilean too? I think so. Technically, symbolically, I know he's Colossians, Laodicean possibly. Nobody. Nameless, weak, despised, rejected. So you're in good company. And I believe God is still looking to work through Galileans. We always look for qualifications, we look for credentials. God looks for foolish and base things. He looks for faithful and obedient people. Amen. And so with this, I want to close. Because I want to close on this note of encouragement to say, Jesus knew His time and went to a region called Galilee. It's not coincidence. He didn't go to the biggest, the megas, whatever. He went to a place that nobody wanted to have anything to do with. He picked out people who were rejected just like Him. Friends, we are in a good place. God is still looking for Galileans. He's looking for Archippuses. Will you respond from this time? Let's pray. Father, I just give you praise and thanks, Lord. I marvel at Scripture for it records for us your heartbeat, Lord. Your sovereignty, your power, everything about you, Lord and how it's demonstrated through the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The timing, His obedience, everything, O oh Lord, we just stand in awe. And Lord, if we are feeling overwhelmed or we feel inadequate in ourselves, Lord, remind us today by your Holy Spirit, you used Galileans, Lord. You used Galileans, Lord. Women of no status, fishermen with no direction, Lord. You called them, you used them. Lord, you can do the same with us. You have given us the Holy Spirit. You are still looking for us to respond. And so I pray for my brothers and my sisters, Lord, 
that you would stir in their hearts this evening. That perhaps I sense for some of you there might have been a little awakening. For some of you, there might have been a moment of revelation tonight. Don't let that go. From this time forth, would you align with the Lord? Would you allow Him to assign you? And so, Lord, help us all. For we desire to be faithful and to be obedient. Empower us by the Holy Spirit, Lord. Bring us into a community of Galileans or our keepers, Lord, so that we can hold each other in check and run the race together. And so, Lord, we bless one another and we bless you too. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.